welcome back. You found us here at episode eight. Just a trigger warning for this, uh, my little intro part. Going to talk about rape, sexual assault, all that uh, bad stuff. And if you do not want to hear it, you can jump five or six minutes in, as per usual, to the meat of the podcast. week the verdict came down for the Gomeshi trial very large sexual assault trial that just happened in Canada of a very famous Canadian man Uh, I suppose he was famous in America as well y'all had Q there (sighs) being on Twitter being on the internet being on any kind of social media felt very stressful that day just the sense of like overwhelming helplessness in the face of the massive institution that is our legal system. A lot of women I knew who were like, man, I thought I was going to be so fucking angry. We're just like, oh, yep, here we go again. Just another fucking notch, notch on the belt that says the legal system isn't here for us. It's not here to protect us. It's not built to protect us. It's not meant to protect us. It's fucking overwhelmingly disheartening and shitty to feel that. I didn't spend too much time while it was on, like, reading into the coverage, reading what was happening in the courts, because I got a gist of that, and it was very upsetting. The way all of the women who came forward were treated was pretty disgusting. The way that the trial was run was dumb as hell, in my extremely non-legal scholar opinion. It is a nightmare to think of, to think of being in that courtroom, to think of being one of those women, to think of being a woman in that courtroom, just sitting there, someone who's there supporting. It's like, fuck, fuck. How are you supposed to come out of that with any trust in the legal system, with any whatsoever? And then at the end for the judge to reprimand the victims? Yeah, well, it's clear he assaulted you, but you didn't act right after. You emailed him. You called him. Maybe if we'd had an expert witness come in to explain that this is a very normal behavior of victims of sexual assault, then the judge wouldn't be making ass backwards statements like that and it being on fucking public record and it setting a legal precedence. (sighs) There is a reason that 99% of the women I know who have experienced sexual assault, who have been raped, have not gone to the police. Why would you do that? Why would you fucking subject yourself to that shit? Why would you have everything about you dragged through the mud? Like, who was defending themselves here? Do you know what I mean? It wasn't him. It wasn't Gomeshi. He never once had to get on the stand and answer for anything. And I mean, I understand his lawyer's reasoning for not putting them on the stand. Again, as a legal scholar, I get that. (sighs) The law is not meant to protect women. I mean, it's also not meant to protect racialized people, to protect queer people, any of that shit. It is meant to protect things. It's meant to protect property and money. And occasionally it's there to just make sure that the patriarchy lives on. Do you know what I mean? I'm angry now, but again, I am disheartened. I feel hopeless. 
I feel like in my lifetime, I'm not going to see the system change to benefit women, to benefit people that it's never benefited. And that fucking sucks. A huge, huge shout out to all the people who do this work every day. It's so much. It's so hard. Because it's hard to put yourself in that state and it's hard to deal with that. And it's hard to just know that you're fighting against a system that is fucking broken. It's broken. No, you know what? It's not broken. It was built this way. It's not by accident that this verdict came out like this. It's not by accident that in Toronto right now, there's been a Black Lives Matter protest outside of the police headquarters, protesting, among many other things, the death of a man called Andrew Loku. Anshma's got to turn the recorder off because I'll just yell for like hours about this. But it's not a fucking mistake. Do you know what I mean? This shit is on purpose. Anyways, this episode's good, though. It is really good. And Monica and I do get into a discussion in the episode where we talk about what happens when you sort of police that behavior in your own communities. So I guess a little trigger warning for that as well. But this episode is also pretty delightful, I think. Uh, Monica's my second friend to be on the podcast, Monica Heisey, a young woman who's accomplished so much, written a book. Like, shit, I'm never going to write a book. I mean, never. Never say never. Um, that's a Justin Bieber quote, and you can take it to the bank. Um, she's written for a couple TV shows. She has a prolific writing career. She is a very funny comedian. Uh, you guys are going to like this episode, because on top of all that, she's a very kind, warm person who gives great advice. So take care of yourselves, hold each other, etc., and... Enjoy this episode very much because I enjoyed recording it. I said when Kyral was on, she was the first person that was like a legit friend of mine to be on the podcast. So you're my second like real friend. Well, it's less cool, I guess. Than... No, it's super cool. <laughs> <laughs> Are you trying to tell me something? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm very excited to be here and very excited to be your friend. Wow. Feel the same way, Monica. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, cool. So how's your day been? Uh, it's been good. I'm getting ready to move. Yes. Been living <laughs> at your mom's. Yeah. Been at my mom's for a month. Had a fun temporary sublet fall through. So everything I own and that my husband owns is in my mom's living room right now. <laughs> Shout out to moms for... <laughs> Being endlessly chill and patient, or at least my mom in particular. Yeah. And that's been fine. I mean, right now I can't use her internet at all. She won't let me. Uh, I came home from being uh, at a cottage for a week, and she was like, you can't get on the internet. I've been hacked. <laughs> and I was like, have you? <laughs> no. Have you mom, been hacked? Did you watch that movie? And she was like, yeah, I've been hacked. It's compromised, the whole system. You can't go, you can't log on. And I was like, oh, no, mom. Um, I, like, I'm pretty sure what happened is that one of those pop-ups came up that uh. says, like, your system's been compromised <laughs> when you're trying to watch, like, a bootlegged copy of Girls or something. Yeah. But there's no way to confirm that that's the case. And she's, like, very adamant that I not use the that internet. That you're just not even. So it's been kind of a relief from my regular work because I can really only work traditional hours when cafes are open. Oh, there you go. 
So I've been working like a pretty standard like 9.30 to 5.30 schedule. Look at you. And uh, you getting dressed and leaving the house. I know. I'm wearing <laughs> uh, slacks. What you could describe reasonably as slacks right yeah, now. Yeah, man. They're not jeans. They're not. Which is what I'm wearing and I've come from an office. So... <laughs> I'm trying to have a little bit of more routine in my life. Yeah, because, like, I feel like I freelanced very briefly. I was working – I was sort of interning very part-time, and it turned into a bit of part-time work, and then I was doing a bit of freelance stuff. And my, like, work-from-home days, I would be really productive until around, like, lunchtime, and I'd be like – Lunchtime, time to like fucking get stoned and watch an episode of Star Trek on the Space Channel. And then I'd be like, okay, now I gotta have a nap. <laughs> and then by the time all that was done, everyone had come home from work that I lived with. And I was like, cool, does anyone wanna have a beer? Like, I'm not very good. I just, right. I mean, as much as I fucking hate the like, I hate working nine to five, I just hate those hours. It sort of forces me to like literally do stuff with my life that isn't like take a five hour break after lunch. Yeah. Well, I was just working in California on a TV show, and we no had— No big, no big, everyone. <laughs> we had great hours. We yeah. were 10 to 6. Oh, that's perfect. Every day. And I found that I really liked that, but it wasn't exactly working in an office. Yeah. So yeah, I, I guess it's a little different, but that's the first time I've had really regular hours, maybe ever. Yeah, that's crazy. I remember talking to your husband one time, shout out Alex Tyndall, and he was like, I'm an actor. Like, I just go— go act at the things that I got to act at. He's like, sometimes that's like, you know, two or three weeks of my life. And then I'm just, you know, I'm sort of fucking around, like doing work and making art or whatever until that happens. And then he was like, she writes every day. And I was like, (laughs) (laughs) I was like, Alex, we are very similar people. (laughs) You guys are really similar people. If it doesn't work out with him, I'm coming for you. (laughs) Yes. Just to make the same mistake over again. (laughs) I'm like, Monica, let's stay in bed. (laughs) That is the, the struggle. Yeah. It is really tempting to just stay in bed all day, and sometimes we do. We have, like, I don't want to say adult baby because that's a different thing. <laughs> but we have, like— That's a different TLC program. Sometimes we'll have the kind of day that when you're, like, a 12-year-old kid and you think mm-hmm. about what an adult's life is like, mm-hmm. we'll deliberately choose to have that day. So we'll sleep in late, and we'll eat something, like, very bad for us for mm-hmm. breakfast, <laughs> and then we'll kind of just, like, walk around and do a fun activity maybe. <laughs> And then come home and play with our cat and go out and get drunk with our friends and accomplish nothing. Oh, and I sounds... feel like that was what I thought it would be like when I was a kid all the time. I don't know where I thought the money would come from. There should be a lesson in, like, grade one that's like, bitch, enjoy it because you're about to get stuck in a fucking capitalist cog. You know what I mean? <laughs> you're about to get stuck in the system. I think I would have enjoyed math class a lot more if it was about, like, getting by on, yeah. you know, X dollars a month. Yeah. Because that would have been really useful when I was— a Mm broke-ass grad student or whatever. Yeah. They taught me how to amortize my mortgage in math, which is hilarious because I'll never need that. (laughs) I'll never need that ability. You're like, can you just show me how to do my taxes? That would be like an incredible class. Why don't you show me how to word a polite email to my landlord to tell them to stop coming into my apartment without telling me (laughs) in math class? The other day at an audition, they asked me to describe my sense of personal style. And you were, like, extremely cool? No, I was, like, um, cave-dwelling teen trying to fit in 
in the world. And they made me do it again. They were like, can you do one that sounds like you don't hate yourself completely? And I was like, well, that's a tall order. Yeah, not possible. Sorry. <laughs> I'm like not that good of an actor. Yeah. You know I mean? <laughs> Are you trying to do more acting? Mm, no, this was for like a talking head program, playing oh. as self. Here's a question that I have about the dumb thing that I just said about um, my audition. Mm -hmm. Do you find in situations where you're put on the spot to be funny that the first place that you go to is sort of self-deprecating? Yeah. I think that's an inclination of comics. If you do stand-up, I think that's an inclination. Because you're told, like, a good rule of stand-up is it's funny off the top to address what you look like. Yes. You never do that in the middle or at the end of your set. You get out of the way. So that no one's thinking about it. Yeah. Right. I'm trying to not go there as much. Do you know, and I sort of stole this from Don Whitwell. Shout out to Don Whitwell, my mentor and very good friend. Um, she has a joke where she talks about being married. And then she goes, of course I'm married. Look at me. I'm beautiful. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like there was something about that that like very much appealed to me. Mm -hmm. Like I love to talk about how good my skin is on stage, how young I look, like <laughs> how beautiful I am. I think that's funnier than yeah. being like... Cough, cough, Amy Schumer. <laughs> Not to even bring her up next to your name. I know y'all had a, uh, a thing. Um, <laughs> Someone looks puzzling. Did you never read the thing that Monica wrote this very gently critical article about Amy Schumer and like gently was like, she has a blind spot around race. And then Amy Schumer was like, bitch, how dare you call me a racist? <laughs> She never directly addressed me, so it could have been to anyone. <laughs> it makes me proud that someone I know has beef with Amy Schumer. It really stresses me out. <laughs> I'm sorry. To we... think about it as beef. Um, I mean, a gentle disagreement. I think it's, it's important and interesting to have conversations like that about mm -hmm. your work with other people who work in similar fields to you. Yeah. I think it's probably hard to have that kind of conversation with someone who you think is a faceless you know, probably, like, in their mind, like, blogger. Yeah. And, you know, maybe I understand why it would be hard to hear it coming from me. Who the hell am I? Yeah. Also, some other white person, who cares? Yeah. So, in a way, I guess I understand why it was, no, I don't. Let's delete yeah. this part. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that she's, like, I feel like part of my job as a white person is to, like, call out other white people so that, like, that's not the continued emotional and intellectual labor of, like, people of color or queer people or whatever. You know what I mean? It's like, mm -hmm. especially in comedy, it's like we have to be having these fucking conversations. And I don't understand why, because we're adults now, the same premise that we were taught as kids is considered no longer important or it's something that only overly sensitive people are concerned about. You know, if you're 10 and someone says to you, what you said hurt my feelings, you apologize and then you don't say that to them again. Yeah. That's it. And you generally just don't say it to other people either because you had a nice, like, life lesson about yeah, it. Yeah, now you've learned that might be hurtful to some people, so you're more careful with how you use that word or you stop using that word. Yeah. I feel like, do you think comedy is sort of like the last vestige of people being like, I can say whatever the fuck I want on stage. It's where you can be raw and you're not, like, policed by whatever they think they're being policed by. I feel like that's a huge problem in comedy that I don't necessarily think exists in other arts communities in the same way. I think it's something that matters less and less on stage because everyone has – well, not everyone, but lots and lots and lots of people have access to the internet mm -hmm. where you really can say whatever you want often anonymously 
so with an extra level of protection. Mm-hmm. So it, I think it's just kind of boring now for someone to get up on stage yeah. and be like, oh, I'm saying I'm saying something vile. Can you believe what I'm <laughs> saying? It's so crazy. And it's like, well, really? you know, go almost anywhere online. Go to any article that any woman writes on the Internet and look at the comments. Yeah. It's, it's all there tenfold. So it's it's not really that shocking. And I don't think it needs a space anymore because there's so many different spaces that you can be atrocious. Yeah. It's funny. I think about jokes that I wrote like two years ago that I don't do anymore, sometimes because they weren't good jokes. Mm. Uh, And sometimes because I'm like, oh, I don't really feel that way anymore. Or maybe I said that in a way that doesn't align with my current sort of ideas around feminism, around the world we live in and all that kind of stuff. And I'm sure that'll just, sometimes I think, God, I must have an hour of material. And then I go, no, you know, I've scrapped (laughs) scrapped 45 minutes of it. (laughs) When I was putting my book together, it was a real, it was a real exercise in seeing the kinds of things that Seeing how much you can change in a year Mm -hmm. or two years. Yeah. Um, Because I was putting together material that I had written from like age 21 to I was 25, like 26 when I signed the thing. Mm -hmm. And so I was taking any material I had from 21 to 26 basically um, to see how much old stuff I wanted to still include in a published Mm -hmm. format. And there were jokes in there that I would just never make today. Yeah. Never, never. Yeah. Um, hopefully I don't think it was anything too horrific, but it was just the sensibility was off mm-hmm. or I was really excited about like internet speak yeah. for a while. That got pretty intense <laughs> um, in a way that's kind of embarrassing to look back on now Yeah, and to know that I, I thought that was funny. And do you think – does it sort of terrify you? Because you have a book. Uh, you wrote and published a book that is very funny. You guys should all buy it. It's called I Can't Believe It's Not Better. Great book title. Um <laughs> Is it something weird for you that in five years maybe you're going to look at that book and go, oh, Monica? (laughs) I already feel that way about that book. I feel like everyone talks about having a book, like the process of writing a book and putting it out in the world, like giving birth. Mm -hmm. But I think it's like going through labor and giving birth and then they put your baby in your arms and you're like, duh. (laughs) Like you're so embarrassed right away. By this thing that you worked so hard to bring into the world and you look at what you're embarrassed by and you don't include that in the next book. (laughs) And uh, hopefully you have a a longer grace period where you like your next book for a little bit more. (laughs) I would say I really liked my book for like a week and a half (laughs) after it came out. You're going to be a great mother someday. I feel like I spend so much time being embarrassed. It's really embarrassing to be a person. Yeah. Of course. Like feelings are embarrassing. Feelings are so embarrassing. Like our daily impulses, so many of them are embarrassing. Like existing in a human body is embarrassing. We have so many different processes that could go wrong, orifices that could malfunction. It's just, <laughs> it's a mess. Yeah. All of my confidence is extremely fake. Um, <laughs> just so, just in case anyone was wondering, it's an extreme ruse. But yeah, I think it's like I fake confidence because I'm always so – I'm so embarrassed. But see, my confidence is – I don't think I'm exploding with confidence, but I think I'm low-key pretty comfortable mm-hmm. with myself. And I think that's based on knowing that everyone else is just as embarrassing as I am. Yeah, that is true. 
I mean, I feel like it's all a ruse, a trick, but some people just seem like they're not embarrassed by anything. But that's a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think that anyone really has a good grasp on what they look like. Yeah, that's also true. You never get to see yourself ever. Yeah. Which it's- is really stressful to think about. You never see your own face with your own eyes. Yeah, unless you can see you're a like- reflection of your own face or a photograph of your own face. Maybe you can see the tip of your nose and your tongue if you stick it out, but that's the only part of your own face that you ever get to see. I mean, I'm always sort of consumed with what I think other people, like, think about me because I'm, like, a narcissist, <laughs> but also, like, I lack a bit of confidence. That's so. also an important part of being a stand-up comedian, yeah. I think. <laughs> Narcissism. Just um, sort of a low-grade self-esteem punctuated by extreme moments of egotism. Yeah, that's exactly it. <laughs> um, you but, know what I think that you should do and what? I think that everyone should do? is just decide that you look like a medium flattering photograph of yourself huh. and proceed as if that's just what you look like. Pick a photo that you like, but that you know is not like, that you know is not at a wild angle, yeah. that you know is not drastically changing your proportions, and then just decide, oh, that's what I look like. That's a good idea. And then you can stop worrying about it, and then you know that if you see a bad photo, it's just unflattering. You're so smart, Monica. It's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I really anchored myself to a certain financial lifestyle based on, like, my creams and serums budget alone. (laughs) I know. It's really out of hand, and I I know that, and I'm not going to stop. I got to buy expensive moisturizer. I got to get my nails done. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'm I'm going to research some moisturizers that have diamonds in them. Yeah. And then I'm going to put it on my face. Yeah. Every day. And then I will take photos to look for changes. (laughs) I sometimes wish that I could just opt out. Of looking anyway at all. I mean, it's hard because I, part of me thinks, well, what if I just choose to never style my hair and never do anything, you know, cosmetic to my mm-hmm. face and wear really sort of dumpy clothes? First of all, there are some people who style that out and look incredible. Yeah. I know true. I would not be one of them, but it would be kind of just opting out of having any aesthetic, which mm-hmm. might be kind of nice. But then I think about how much harder or sort of in small ways how much more annoying my life is even when I'm not wearing mascara. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I think is hard to explain. Living with with my husband has been interesting and explaining that to him. He'll be like, you don't have to do makeup. And I'm like, no, I know that. Yeah. You don't have to do it. I don't have to do anything, really. But, but. Yeah, I don't have to do anything, okay. But <laughs> Alex. <laughs> but I'm making my own life easier Yeah, by opting into this small rule about how women's eyelashes are supposed to look. Yeah. And it's like, on the one hand, I'm reinforcing for other women how their eyelashes are supposed to look. And on the other hand, I'm making it more pleasant. I'm making, like, the bus driver more pleasant to me so that when I get to the place that I'm going, I'm in a better mood and I can convey my thoughts and feelings with greater grace and accuracy so that I'm then hopefully, you know, combating other kinds of sexism that to me are more important. Yeah, and I think that, like, the idea – okay, I've thought about this. I'm just going to work it out to you into this microphone. Um, I extremely understand your inclination to want to opt out of that. But I think that denying that I have a personal aesthetic and that I like pretty and beautiful things 
I think ignoring that would make me unhappy on a lot of levels. And I don't think it always has to do with makeup or whatever, but like I like my glasses and I like Mm -hmm. having my nails done and I like to wear clothes that I think are nice. Like I like these shoes. You know what I mean? Sorry, I'm stretching. I didn't mean to like actually make you look at my shoes. They're very nice. Thank you. And so for me, I don't think that I'm opting into that because I feel pressure from like the patriarchy, for lack of a better word. But I understand what you mean in terms of, like, makeup and making yourself look a certain way to sort of, like, make your day-to-day existence easier. Mm -hmm. But I also think that, like, again, like, denying that would be denying my love of, like, attractive and pretty and beautiful things. Well, it's really complicated. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, I think I've gotten more weird about it in the past year. Mm -hmm. Around the time that the book came out, I had to take my photo a bunch not a bunch but it was a bunch for me mm-hmm. in that it was you know by strangers and more than never yeah so and we met with a publicist about the book and I'm, I, t- I wanted to talk to her on the phone and she said we should Skype so I can see what you look like and then we Skyped and the first thing that she said was oh you're cute that's good mm-hmm. and I was like <laughs> <laughs> and I just wanted to like um you know that episode of The Simpsons where a gas gets into their house and all of their skin turns them inside out and mm-hmm. they do a dance? Yeah. <laughs> that was me, basically, in yeah. that moment. That's... And then also a different publicist might disagree. Yeah, right. So it's so subjective anyway. <laughs> yeah, it's... I wonder if it's the same for men. I'm sure it's not. I'm sure it's not. Of course, like, men have a beauty standard. Men mm-hmm. have things they're like, you know, even if they don't always realize it, they're like aspiring to be. Yeah. Or to look like, Well, beards are like the great leveler, and I think that's why they're so popular. Yeah, that's true. You just put something over your face yeah. that people agree is kind of cool and mm-hmm. looks good, and then you don't have to deal with the lower half of your face at all. Yeah, I would totally get a beard. Totally get a beard. Yeah, I would have a lot of facial hair if I was a man. <laughs> yeah. So do you not just wish you could be like a light mist mm-hmm. that attends parties sometimes? Yeah. Um, and like you know like all of your output would be the same all of your creative work would be the same but you'd just like float on stage as like a light mist yeah yeah Sierra mist (laughs) that's disgusting having an interesting conversation yesterday in the DMs about the Gia Tolentino piece mm-hmm. about the important literary man. Yes. Gia Tolentino wrote a, a very long and well-researched and interesting and nuanced piece for Jezebel about the crisis. Mm-hmm. And it is, I think, a crisis in probably any industry. I don't even just want to say the creative industries, Mm -hmm. but because the line between personal and professional is so, so blurred. Mm -hmm. And she talks about music and in in creative writing in particular. You know, men in positions of power have a bad track record, shall we say, for little things like dating their students or maybe calling someone in their lecture honey. Yeah. Up to and beyond, you know, what constitutes abuse. Yeah. Um, or assault. And that's, it's hard to know what to do when things that seem like a personal issue, like, um, you know, bad behavior within a relationship, mm-hmm. when does that become a professional problem and when does your employer need to take action if you're basically a bad guy to date 
but then the people you date happen to be your students. Yeah, it's so weird. And also, I think we've all been in situations where you're warned about someone. Someone says, you know, I heard some things about this guy or I dated this guy and he was a piece of shit in these ways. And it's not even necessarily other women being like, well, that guy sexually assaulted me or that guy raped me or whatever. But it's like, just look out for that guy. Because I got in some weird vibes and he did some sort of exploitative shit to me. And like, I think the interesting thing is in the creative industries, like you say, the personal and professional are, it's so blurred. And also, office hours, like, don't always exist in the same way. Mm-hmm. So unlike in a nine-to-five where you sort of, like, show up and then you go or sometimes, you know, capitalism forces you to work late or whatever, um, when that kind of stuff happens within what almost seems more like a community, yes. then what happens when it's something where, well, you know, I can't really press charges about this? I mean, I think it's it's <laughs> – in a kind of gross way, much easier when an obvious crime mm-hmm. <laughs> is committed. Yeah. And then even though the pathways to justice there are, as we've seen, extremely difficult to navigate in their own way, mm-hmm. there is at least in theory recourse that you can take. But when it's just a habit of treating women like things mm-hmm. or being unkind to women over whom someone yields a lot of power, mm-hmm. I really don't know what to do aside from just not liking that person. Yeah. You know, I don't like that kind of behavior. And it's hard, too, because especially within those communities, you are still forced to socialize with that person. You're forced to work with that person a lot of the times. And it's like in the interest of everything going smoothly, you sometimes sort of are just like, I fucking hate this person. I know that he acts out in shitty ways, but, like, I'd prefer for there to not be, like, a clash or whatever. There's men in the comedy communities and the writing communities who I know have dated a bunch of women who are friends of mine who were bad to all of them in sort of the same way. Mm -hmm. And you see them around, and what is your obligation as a friend, as a woman, Mm -hmm. as a professional, especially in a short interaction at a bar or Mm -hmm. something for a book event or whatever it is. Yeah, and you're like, okay, all I had to do was, like, say hi to this person, but really you want to be like... why do I have to say hi to you? Yo, fuck you. You know what I mean? Like... In Gia's piece, I say Gia like I know her. I just admire her work a lot. (laughs) In the piece that Gia wrote, um, she talks kind of hopefully about the fact that there's a bit of a sea change going on Mm -hmm. and that we take those kinds of warnings much more seriously now. And they have started to impact, um, if not direct action from people's employers, they've started to impact where those kinds of men are welcome. Mm -hmm. You know, being shitty is not a crime. Yeah. But it also doesn't mean that people have to hang out with you. Yeah. People make choices about who they want to work with or want to hang out with based on way less important Mm -hmm. criteria than that. I'm hopeful that things are getting better I think there are fewer of those kinds of people around. Certainly in the comedy community, I feel like I've seen a few people who were known to be quite unpleasant to date kind of fade out of favor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that appeals to me. Yeah. I like that. I like it too. I think there's levels to it is what I'll say. Like, Because I think there's definitely like the idea that you know someone who's like a piece of shit and who like does shitty things to women and is someone who's bad to date or whatever. But like – There is a difference between someone who's like that, who's in your community, and someone who has a level of power. Absolutely. I wonder if it will never not be sort of 
corruptive? Is it like a chicken before the egg sort of thing? Like, were you shitty before you had this like position and now it's just like coming out or like did having that sort of like power and prestige or whatever, like make you sort of a shitty abusive person? Like, I don't even necessarily know where I'm going with this, but I do think there is like a bit of a sea change and we are like our lexicon now includes terms like rape culture. We talk about that. We talk about uh, abuse and harassment in a way that is more nuanced. And it's much harder, I think, to discredit women. Now. Yeah, but like, well, is it like not, what happened in the, the Gian Gomeshi yeah, case, right? right? Like those women also held, if you think about Lucy de Couture, like in the industry, she's considered a sort of like a famous in Canada. And it just didn't matter, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't matter, right? The justice system is so separate to, like, community. And that's yeah. what makes me nervous is the idea of, like, and I think this is something else that the piece was getting into is what is a community's job in terms of policing that kind of mm-hmm. thing? And, again, what is the burden of proof? And if there is one, who is it on? Yeah. I was scrolling through Twitter, so this is a bad uh, way to cite any kind of fact, I guess. <laughs> one of the U.K. newspapers was saying that somewhere – this is this is bad. Somewhere has changed their rape laws, and maybe you guys can look up where it is and just overdub my voice <laughs> saying the actual place, but somewhere has changed their rape laws so that men have to prove that the woman said yes, rather than the woman having to prove herself that she said no. That's very interesting. And I shouldn't say the man. Mm-hmm. The rapist. Yeah, the, the, rape, the accused rapist yeah. has to prove that the complainant said yes. There you go. Mm-hmm. Your dad's lawyer. I can see that now. <laughs> um, yeah, that's so fascinating because it does feel a lot of the times in sexual assault in rape cases where the victim is on trial the victim's memory is on trial there's this thing where we're like if i came to the cops and was like i was robbed they'd be like oh shit like let's help you but if i was like Someone assaulted me. They'd be like, well. Did they? Did they? You know what I mean? What was going on there? Were you drunk? Were you doing this? Mm -hmm. And so people are like less inclined, even in the legal system. Like, Oh, the legal system doesn't know how to handle it at all. I'd be more likely to fake my house being robbed (laughs) than I would fake a sexual assault. Yeah. Because like if I faked my house being robbed and I did it good, I would get insurance money from that. Yeah, but if you fake being raped, then you get all of those great career opportunities. (laughs) Yeah, and it's like really fun for you afterwards. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like, there's so many good reasons to fake it. Yeah, you'll be famous, <laughs> but you need to go on The Bachelor, probably. Oh God, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> but the fact that we're even having these conversations in the wake of that very disappointing trial, mm-hmm. I think, is hopeful. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm certainly very hopeful that things will be significantly better in the next decade. Yeah, and I think like the point you made is sort of about like justice or policing within one's own community is interesting. I've always been sort of more interested in restorative than punitive justice anyways. And I think it's a long way off because there are much more pressing issues to deal with, but we also need a way for people who have committed assault to be able to understand what that means yeah. so that they can start to make whatever reparations look like between them and their victim. But also personally, Mm -hmm. I think one of the reasons that it's so hard to get someone who's assaulted someone to understand what they've done is because it's very hard to conceptualize yourself Mm -hmm. as someone who's capable of that. Yeah. 
Well, I always think back to a study that came out. I can't remember what university it came out of. Maybe we can dub my voice over a second. <laughs> um, they did a study where they asked a large number of men, have you ever raped someone? And the numbers were very low. It was like, you know, maybe 10% of people in this sort of like study were 10% like. 10% seems high. I mean, it was probably less than that. But I'm sort of, because on the other end, they changed the language. They re-asked the question. And the question was, have you ever talked someone into having sex with you? Have you ever convinced someone against their will to have sex with you? And it just went up like 90% of the people were like, yeah, I've done that. Mm -hmm. So where is the disconnect here? It's You know what I mean? Yeah, it's like, the bad, bad guy in an alley kind yeah. of image, which is a really, really minor uh, percentage. Yeah, I literally don't. Cases. Off the top of my head, like I could tell you that a large percentage of my female friends have been sexually assaulted or raped, I would say a very small number of those people was from people that they did not know. Right. Or weren't personally, like, friends or partners or people in the community or whatever. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? You know, we could just light it on fire and start <laughs> over, right? That's a possibility. Everyone just becomes a mist. Yeah. And yeah. we burn it all to the ground. Yep. Then we're mist people. <laughs> and then it's like that old computer game, Mist. Yes. Which I played a lot as a kid, but I didn't understand what the rules or goals of the game were, so I just sort of wandered around in yeah. the fog. Yeah. <laughs> and I found it very soothing. Yeah. Thanks for coming. Oh, thanks for having me. Thanks for letting me take a little break from work today. Oh. I was like, bang, I, I gotta go do something important. <laughs> um, and they were like... Ugh. Friends... That is it for this week's show. I would like to thank again my dear friend Monica Heisey for coming through and recording the episode. It was so fun and I hope you guys enjoyed it. Cavern of Secrets is, as per usual, brought to you by Hazlitt. It's hosted by me, Lauren Mitchell, you know, until I get unceremoniously fired. <laughs> Just kidding. Our theme was made by Bianca Giulione. It is produced by my dear friend, Anshman Idamsetti. You can find us all over the goddamn web. We're on iTunes, we're on Stitcher, we're on SoundCloud. We're all over the place. We got a website? Who has a website? Not you. Maybe you do. Do you know what? It's fine. We have a website. It's cavernofsecrets.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Cavern of Secrets. You could throw us a little rating on iTunes if you're so inclined. Uh, but other than that, I hope you enjoyed the episode. And I'll see you all soon. 